Welcome to Madison's Notes, the official podcast of Princeton University's James Madison Program in American Ideals and Institutions. I'm your host, Nino Scalia. Our website is jmp.princeton.edu, and our Twitter handle is at Madison Program. It's great to have you with us. Hello, and welcome back to Madison's Notes. I'm your host, Nino Scalia, and our guest today is Michael Breidenbach. Michael is an associate professor of history at Ave Maria University and co-editor of the Cambridge Companion to the First Amendment and Religious Liberty. His writing has appeared in the Washington Post, The Atlantic, First Things, and elsewhere. In 2013, Michael was a Thomas W. Smith postdoctoral research associate here at Princeton University's James Madison Program in American Ideals and Institutions. Michael joins us today to discuss his new book, Our Dear Bought Liberty, Catholics and Religious Toleration in Early America. Michael Breidenbach, welcome to Madison's Notes and welcome back to the James Madison Program. Thank you very much, Nino. It's a pleasure to be with you. First question, the why. It's 2021. About 20% of American adults identify as Catholic. Americans seem less and less interested in Christianity and less and less interested in America's founding. Yet here you are, Michael, with a thoroughly researched and interesting book on Catholics and religious toleration in early America. Why? Why is this an important conversation to have today? Well, I think the founding era and the early American period generally is enduringly interesting. I would say that if you go to a local bookstore, uh, you'll find a lot of the history has to do, of course, with biography, but a lot of it has to do, at least in the United States, in the American founding era. And this is an enduring question, not least because uh, the United States has uh, a discernible founding or foundings uh, that are hotly contested. And lots of scholars and the public generally uh, continue to be interested in it uh, for the reasons that they, they understand it as a kind of question of identity. And I think that also dovetails nicely with questions of religious identity. Mm. I think religions, uh, relig- people of faith have always tried to understand themselves as both religious and American and trying to understand that compatibility. And that's, I think, at the heart of this book. How is it possible to be both Catholic and American? That's a question that uh, the very first Catholic settlers asked themselves. And before that, they asked themselves about how is it possible to be English and Catholic at the same time? And so that question, I think, animates the book. It's also a personal uh, question for, for many people. Um, you mentioned that uh, uh, there's there's a lack of uh, religiosity in America. Mm-hmm. It's my understanding that religion is still very much alive in the United States. It maybe has taken different uh, tenor or, or um, tones, uh, but the fact that we have a second Catholic president, the fact that we have a majority Catholic on the Supreme Court, uh, you know, uh, many in Congress, uh, many leaders in Congress are Catholic. This seems to be a really important question, not just in terms of religion, but Catholicism in particular. Uh, the fact that um, the, the major media outlets continue to talk about Pope Francis, for instance, yeah. as a world leader, as someone with moral suasion, who, who um, is able to uh, command their attention, I think speaks volumes about their enduring legacy of Catholicism, not just in America, but in the world. 
you divide the book into three chapters, uh, Catholics as subjects, Catholics as revolutionaries, and finally Catholics as citizens. If we can, perhaps we could have you walk us through these three, starting with Catholics as subjects. As you just mentioned, we have today uh, our second Catholic president, a Supreme Court that is made up of a majority of Catholics, and yet you begin with detailing Catholics as subjects, first as colonists in, in, of England, and then again in early America. Can you walk us through that? Sure. So the, the section on subjects is about uh, effectively English Catholics in the American colonies. I think it's important to understand them as English because so much of their political culture, their legal culture, their religious culture was um, based on a kind of uh, English sensibility um, that was Protestant, that was in many ways anti-Catholic. That was their milieu. And what I wanted to uh, do in that first chapter is understand their journey as one of, in, in a way, fleeing from persecution, as we often understand this is a kind of Protestant story. But here we have English Catholics who are subjects of the crown, a crown that has declared itself um, the defender of the Church of England, the universal governor of the Church of England, and sees itself as propagating that particular brand of Protestantism uh, to the American colonies. Where do Catholics fit in that story? Mm -hmm. that's, a, that's a story that we are often not taught. And so I wanted to uncover that story and give voices to Catholics to understand that how they, in fact, um, understood their English and Catholic identities. And the way I look at that is uh, through lots of lenses, but one particular is, is by law. And the law that I'm particularly interested in is the Oath of Allegiance. Mm -hmm. This is the oath after Guy Fawkes um, tried to assassinate the king and members of parliament, who's a Catholic, uh, and his co-conspirators. After that, um, Catholics were seen to be dangerous until proven loyal. And this Oath of Allegiance was meant to weed out, as James I, King of England, argued, weed out the good and the bad Catholics. And effectively, someone would have to swear, if they want to be considered to be a good subject, that the Pope does not have the power to intervene in English affairs, mm -hmm. uh, whether that's annulling civil laws or excommunicating a king and therefore effectively um, abrogating his authority and so on and so forth. And so Catholics were um, required to swear this oath um, in order to be considered to be good subjects. The problem, of course, is that the Pope said, if you swear that oath, you're by definition excommunicated from the Catholic Church. So these are very bad options indeed. <laughs> and um, the problem with this, of course, is that anyone who wanted to sail to America had to swear this oath. And so a lot of energy went into uh, trying to understand whether you could swear that oath in good conscience as a Catholic or whether you could amend it. And what I found in the archives in London is that the founders of Maryland, George and Cecil Calvert, amended the oath. And they effectively eliminated the clause about papal authority to suspend it in a kind of um, holy ambiguity, a kind of limbo about whether they actually believed it or not. It turns out that they actually didn't believe that the Pope had this kind of authority in English affairs. But um, to say so publicly would uh, raise the ire of Rome. And so they just fell silent. And that was a kind of pragmatic solution. So that's how they dealt with the question of dual loyalties as subjects. They still wanted to remain loyal to the crown uh, and still uh, considered themselves Catholic, uh, believe in Catholic truths, uh, but denied this kind of papal authority. 
as we moved into the uh, revolutionary stage, we find the same strategy. The Carroll family, one of the most prominent Catholic families in early America and uh, some of the most uh, wealthy, um, also continued that tradition of denying certain papal authority in order to be considered to be good subjects and later citizens. And the book culminates in the establishment of the See of Baltimore, the first diocese, Catholic diocese in the United States, and the US Constitution, the codification of the Constitution, and in particular, the First Amendment. And at every stage, I argue in the book, the Carols in particular, but also other figures that one may not uh, immediately recognize, like Fitzsimmons uh, or Dominic Lynch, uh, other prominent Catholics, argued for Catholic um, acceptability of not just toleration, but religious liberty, um, and presented themselves to major figures like James Madison and George Washington, whom they called friends, uh, that they could be uh, good subjects, uh, excuse me, citizens, not subjects. Uh, and they were part of that founding, not just a peripheral part, but an, in an integral part. So in that transition from subject to citizen, there's a revolution. Listeners may be aware of Charles Carroll. You mentioned the Carroll family, the only Roman Catholic to sign the Declaration of Independence. But outside of that, we don't get much. We have no taxation without representation. George Washington, Valley Forge, and Yorktown, sure. But Catholicism, not in our history books. So, Michael, plead your case. What role did Catholics play in the American Revolution of 1776? Well, in the popular imagination, both today and at the time of the revolution, Catholics played a villain. Hmm. Uh, if you look at uh, the Quebec Act, for instance, uh, the so-called one of the so-called intolerable acts, what was so intolerable about the Quebec Act, among other things, was the fact that, as Protestants said, it established the Catholic Church in neighboring Canada, which had uh, been ceded to Britain. And what they found intolerable about that was you had papists who aligned themselves with um, the enemy, the French, uh, aligned themselves with the other enemy, the Antichrist, or they called him the, right, uh, the Pope, and wanted to, as it were, defend uh, good Christianity, Protestantism, against these uh, religious and political foes. And so when you look at, say, Samuel Adams' uh, correspondence, uh, on uh, around this time, you, you find uh, a, a pretty fervent anti-Catholic sentiment that ran the lines of, uh, this is not just a religious menace, but a political menace. Why? Because Catholicism presents an imperium in imperio, a state within a state, yeah. which uh, divides sovereignty and a divided house cannot stand. Um, and so effectively, these Catholics will deliver themselves up to the allegiance of a foreign power, the Pope. And so Catholics play the villain oftentimes in this uh, Protestant political culture. What I want to do is, as it were, resurrect um, a, a Catholic story that um, has been there, uh, but has been, as it were, um, uh, buried based on this overwhelming anti-Catholic rhetoric, hmm. sometimes uh, more rhetoric than actual substance. And so what we find actually is the same Congress that talked about uh, the religion of bloodshed in Canada is also the same Congress that sent Charles Carroll and a Catholic priest, John Carroll, Charles Carroll's second cousin, to Canada in order to curry favor with the Catholic Canadians, the mm -hmm. same Continental Congress. Um, and you could call this sort of Janus-faced, 
But of course, uh, this, is, this is part and parcel with the kind of anti-popery that we find in early America. They're willing to um, find certain Catholics agreeable as long as they are anti-papalist, yeah. right? As long as they don't believe the Pope has the kind of authority that would be politically menacing. They're fine with sort of domesticated Catholics, um, but the foreign Catholics, the Canadian Catholics, the ones that um, want to establish the Catholic Church in, in Canadian territory, and eventually they would argue um, to the North American territories generally, those are the menacing Catholics that need to be um, uh, either recruited uh, on our side or, um, or warred against. Yeah. So that's the kind of story that I, I wanna tell. The, the Declaration of Independence is, is another important example here. Um, the Declaration of Independence, of course, uh, has, a, has a wonderful preamble, um, but one of the most um, basic parts of the Declaration that we often miss because we're wowed by the sort of the, the rights and the, the theoretical underpinnings of it, the, the basic um, takeaway from the Declaration of Independence is that we declare these United States free and independent. Right, it's 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 an international law intervention, yeah. and the text that they use for justifying this is Emmerich de Vatal's Law of Nations. This is a Swiss jurist, and uh, Benjamin Franklin recounts how people are reading Vatal, and he's sort of the textbook for international law at the time, as it was. And what's important to know about uh, this sort of underpinning here is, is that the Declaration in appropriating Vital's theory says free and independent states means no external authority. It's mm -hmm. a kind of statement of Republican liberty. The mere presence of an arbitrary external power right, over your country means that the country is not free. And so Vital goes into quite explicit length in saying this is against papalism, against the idea that the Pope has the authority to intervene in other countries' affairs. Uh, he quotes Pope Boniface VIII as, as sort of paradigmatic of this view. Charles Carroll signs this document. He's very much aware of Vital's theory. He has his book. Um, uh, this, is, this is exactly what Republican liberty is, is, is. And he signs this document. No Catholic who signs this document could be a papalist. Yeah. Um, and so when, when we talk about Catholicism, I think in the American founding, we have to understand that it's this particular kind of Catholicism that we're talking about. Yeah. Um, it's not the ultramontane Catholicism that we often see in the 19th uh, uh, century. Yeah, I'd like to turn to this, this particular Catholicism in a little bit. Uh, but first, I want to talk about the Catholic as citizen. And perhaps as a way into this section, we could start with a person, uh, Daniel Carroll. You write that if James Madison was the father of the Constitution, Daniel Carroll was the First Amendment's godfather. Can you tell us about Daniel Carroll and his contributions to perhaps the most vaunted of all of our amendments? Daniel Carroll is best known for his unambiguous uh, support of James Madison's amendment, which became the First Amendment, particularly on the religion clauses. And he's recorded in the Congressional Register as, as giving a kind of a soaring oration, uh, a pithy one, but a soaring oration about the rights of conscience and uh, how blessed they are and how delicate they are and, and should be enshrined uh, and codified in this constitution, an unambiguous support. Whereas other uh, congressmen uh, speak about uh, the religion clauses being unnecessary or not quite the right language at that point. Uh, he's the one who's, who supports it unambiguously. And that's no surprise. I mean, Daniel Carroll 
uh, who's another very wealthy Catholic uh, member of this Carroll dynasty in Maryland, um, faced religious persecution. Uh, in order for him to go to school, a Catholic school, he had to go all the way to France. And that's where all the Carols were educated, uh, at Saint-Omer um, and, uh, and other Jesuit colleges. And so he faced that kind of religious persecution, not the kind of religious persecution that results in martyrdom, but the kind of quiet persecution that, that made him up until now not allowed to be in public office, um, basically resigned him to a life of, um, of quiet economy. And now we have him in the halls of Congress. This is a momentous occasion. I mean, if you look at the, the analog in, in British society, we don't have Catholics entering the halls of power until much, much later. Mm. Um, and so this is a, a quiet but momentous transformation in which not only Catholics um, are, are willing to support religious liberty and church state separation and revolution, um, three areas that, uh, that Rome had, um, to say the least, uh, wanted to stay away from. Um, we also have a, a political culture that's willing to accept someone like Daniel Carroll into the first federal uh, Congress. Um, in order to even be sworn into office, uh, British uh, legislators would have to uh, swear against papal authority uh, and would have to be Catholic. Um, the oath of allegiance in the U.S. Constitution um, is is very basic uh, to support the Constitution and and the laws of the United States, uh, and so this is a remarkable transformation. And Daniel Carroll is known for his uh, his statement for religious uh, liberty, but also the very fact that he's allowed right to be in Congress. Um, uh, now, Daniel Carroll himself. Uh, is the godfather of the First Amendment, I argue, um, because he not only supports the First, Am First Amendment, but uh, I show in the, the archives and correspondence between Madison and Dan O'Carroll, uh, a concerted effort to usher in uh, uh, religious liberty and the constitution generally uh, among the state conventions. Mm -hmm. There is a concerted effort here that uh, is not acknowledged. This is not James Madison doing it alone. Uh, he had help and he had help with by Catholics. And later on, when uh, the United States Congress debates the naturalization oath, right, what kind of oath should we have in order to uh, admit uh, naturalized citizens into the United States? Um, there is some uh, murmur about uh, Catholics being uh, bad, bad Republicans, right? Catholics not being uh, uh, very good citizens by, say, Dem Samuel Dexter from Massachusetts. And James Madison intervenes. Uh, right away and says he's never uh, questioned the, um, the loyalty of Catholics. He knows many of them, he says, and of course he's referencing Daniel Carroll here and others, um, and said, uh, you know, Republicanism and Catholicism are perfectly compatible. He says this on the floor of Congress. And so that's the kind of relationship, father and godfather, that I want to invoke here. To say godfather is not to say he birthed yeah. the First Amendment, right. Um, but it is to say that he supported it and, and dare I say spiritually supported it as well. Mm -hmm. I mean, there's a kind of uh, theoretical support here that, uh, that I think is captured by that term. You mentioned a few moments ago, Michael, this uh, certain type of Catholicism that we see at the American founding, this anti-papalist uh, conciliarist tradition. And as you write, this tradition was pervasive and persuasive for American Catholics. Can you explain this school of thought and just how important it was for American Catholics in the colonial period and at the time of our founding? Sure. Let me let me work backwards. 
if you read the reliable, durable, anti-Catholic polemics in American England, what you can do is distill this into two basic premises. And, and you can look at this in terms of uh, major figures like John Locke or very minor figures, uh, Protestant preachers uh, at, at local churches. However you want to look at it, it boils down to two main principles. One is that they fear that if Catholics believe the Pope is infallible, then Catholics have to believe what the Pope says. Now, they understand infallibility pretty capaciously. And so that, that, that specter is quite frightening to them because they deliver their consciences up, um, what John Locke calls a kind of mental slavery, right? So that's the first problem, papal infallibility for, for Protestants against Catholics. The second problem, as I already mentioned, is the, this papal authority in, in the political or temporal affairs of other countries. And this is not just a theoretical matter. Um, the fact that Pope Innocent annuls Magna Carta um, looms very large in the Protestant imagination, right? The fact that the Pope could, could exercise this kind of authority that touches quite directly on political affairs is, is frightening. It means that, in fact, the sovereign has very little sovereignty with respect um, to the minds of Catholics. Uh, when it really comes down to it, right? Um, so if you take those as sort of um, the, the kind of uh, uh, hurdles, right, that um, uh, prevent Catholics from becoming good subjects or later good citizens in the, in the American context, well, these need to be answered, it seems to me. And uh, scholars have argued, well, uh, they were Republican Catholics, Right, and so so they didn't believe that uh, the Pope had this this authority. Well, that sort of begs the question. It seems to me, why why indeed were they Republican Catholics, and how did they square that with with papal teaching, which had said that um, there's a kind of papal infallibility, or at least a a, um, a kind of authority that uh, one should uh, receive with religious assent, um, or the fact that popes indeed had intervened uh, already in. European political affairs for many centuries. Um, so that sort of begs the question. Others argue, well, um, they became Protestantized. But that also seems to beg the question um, because of course they, they, they understood themselves as Catholic. Mm -hmm. Arrestus Brownson has this, has this great uh, uh, line in which he says, you know, none of our founders were Catholic, um, but, uh, and, and um, this has been, but, but, but in, in some ways, they, uh, they, they built better than they knew, right? Mm -hmm. and, and so uh, that's, that's um, the third council of, of Baltimore's quotation, of course, that John Courtney Murray takes up. But that's effectively the kind of long argument that not, none of them were Catholic, um, but, but um, they, they built with a kind of Catholic natural law thinking. Well, of course, there were Catholics at the founding. Um, Brownson would be surprised, maybe. Um, but they weren't Protestantized in the sense that they understood themselves as Catholic. And the kind of uh, denial of papal authority that I'm describing predates Protestantism. So let me get to the, the core of it, right? This conciliarist movement. Um, this has a long tradition of ecclesiology, right? Ecclesiology of thinking about church governance. Um, this idea that um, the church is not some kind of absolute monarchy right, but that papal authority is, is one of a, a, a host of other kind of authorities within the church. And that infallibility rests within all the bishops together convened in council, including the Bishop of Rome, of course, the Pope. Um, but that when the church speaks infallibly, 
she does so in councils, say Second Vatican Council or First Vatican Council, Council of Trent and so on. Um, this is a long standing tradition uh, that predates Protestants by, by many centuries. Um, in fact, uh, Martin Luther is well aware of this conciliar tradition and uh, argues at some point uh, before, before he uh, breaks uh, definitively with Rome, uh, argues that uh, these, these uh, matters should be taken up in council, right? This is the standard way of, of resolving theological disputes. And so um, effectively the conciliar tradition denies, right? The two things that Protestants want Catholics to deny to be politically um, solvent. They want to deny that the Pope is infallible by himself. And that was the standard uh, uh, belief among conciliarists uh, that infallibility did not rest in the Pope alone, but in councils. And they also denied uh, that uh, the Pope can intervene in the temporal affairs of other countries. And this was uh, one of the best expressions of this is the Gallican declaration in the 17th century. Um, and, uh, and one of the ways that these Americans access to the conciliar tradition is through the Gallican church. And maybe we can discuss that more, but that's effectively the tradition that uh, these Catholics draw on. This tradition, this conciliarist tradition is not compatible uh, with church teaching as I take it, right? Take, for example, the first Vatican council in 1870, which defined and affirmed the infallibility of the Pope. Mm -hmm. So I'm curious, what does this say about the relationship between Catholics and the American founding and Catholics in America today? If, if this sort of linchpin, this uh, type of Catholicism that was present at the time of the American founding and so influential no longer carries any water today? That's a great question. Uh, you're, you're quite right that the first Vatican Council um, essentially um, put uh, conciliarism to the, the, the ash heap of heresy um, uh, in the sense that um, it definitively declared papal infallibility as, as dogma. Now, it, there's a certain irony of this, of course, uh, in that a council declared papal infallibility to be true. Um, and so it, it, in some ways, um, it affirmed a, a kind of conciliar, if not conciliarist, uh, view of the church. Um, so it's, it's true that um, uh, Orthodox Catholics cannot deny papal infallibility. But I think what the First Vatican Council did quite helpfully in terms of this debate is define it in such a way that it looks a lot less menacing than uh, early American Protestants had uh, envisioned. In other words, the, the set of criteria for papal infallibility is, is quite narrow, such that um, it has been said that only, it's only been evoked a few times in church history. Um, and one of the reasons why early American Catholics could deny papal infallibility is because uh, it was not very well defined before. Um, and so, you know, John Carroll, the first Bishop of Baltimore uh, could say quite rightly that papal infallibility uh, as a maxim had been exploded, his words, uh, in countries like France, which is as a matter of historical record, true. Um, but uh, it also was not very well defined. And so once you define it very narrowly to say, okay, when we're talking about sort of uh, uh, dogma about uh, the Virgin Mary or something like that, um, that doesn't seem to be very politically potent, mm -hmm. right? And so I, I suppose that's acceptable, right? 
I mean, at least I don't see a lot of anti-Catholic polemics of the kind that I saw in 18th century America. And so my sense is that um, the, the limited definition of papal infallibility, as it were, has, has made it a little bit safer, you might say, for a Republican um, or Protestant um, culture. All the same, um, the idea that the Pope could intervene in the temporal affairs of other countries, I think, remains in some ways uh, a, a lived experience. Um, for instance, uh, Pope Francis, as I understand it, um, helped to broker um, uh, relations between the United States and Cuba. Um, he talks uh, uh, quite frequently about matters that, you know, in some way could be uh, construed to be political. Um, you know, the Holy See has a seat at the United Nations. The Pope is a head of state. And so um, there's a kind of intervention in temporal affairs quite often that the Pope engages in. And um, I, I think this is all towards um, the, uh, not for the, uh, the sake of political affairs as such, but the sake of uh, faith and morals is, is how the Pope would construe it. Um, but oftentimes that touches on politics and uh, law and all the rest. And again, I think um, one way that uh, American Catholics can understand this is, is, is that um, uh, it, it would be um, uh, hard to believe that the Pope would intervene uh, in such a way that he would declare a certain law in the United States to be annulled, right? Um, there has been a kind of development in, of how popes have used this kind of spiritual authority in temporal affairs in such a way that respects uh, the freedom of nations and uh, the freedom of consciences. Um, but that the germ of, of that idea, I think, still remains. Politics, law, religion, we can't talk about any of these things in the American founding without discussing the separation of church and state. And a, a 21st century understanding of this principle probably goes something like this. Uh, religion should stay out of the business of government. Keep the spiritual in churches, synagogues, and mosques. With the American founders, and I, I know that's too broad of a term, but generally speaking, what did the American founders think it meant to have a separation between church and state? Well, I think they varied on the question. I think uh, there are, uh, and of course, they, they varied not only on the theoretical question, but also the juridical question. Uh, you have established churches in Massachusetts and New Hampshire and so on, um, but you also have a non-establishment clause on the federal level. So I think they kind of split the question juridically, uh, federal and state, and even local, uh, um, in which you have taxes that would go for a local church, uh, but they would not want uh, you know, uh, taxes to go for a kind of federal uh, church, a church in the United States, if you will. Um, so I think there are uh, a, a plethora of views, both um, philosophically and juridically on this question and theologically. Um, so it is hard to sort of pin down what the founders meant, right. um, except to say that uh, we have some texts that show a kind of consensus, you might say, of what they understood themselves to be doing when they... Um, framed, ratified, uh, say, the First Amendment religion clauses. And I think that's quite clear. Um, they didn't want a church in the United States. Uh, and one of the ways in which the book, um, um, I think, intervenes in that particular view of no church in the United States is to say, well, what is exactly does that mean? I mean, after all, if the, if the analog is the Church of England, um, well, they, they clearly didn't want uh, 
taxation uh, to accrue uh, to a, a federal establishment. Uh, they didn't want um, a kind of creed um, to be uh, um, uh, drafted by, by Congress or something like that, uh, but they did have chaplains and they still do. Um, and uh, they did have uh, money that went towards um, uh, clergy. I mean, one example that I like to, to offer is um, the Civilization Fund um, in the late 18th century. Um, Congress passed uh, several laws uh, appropriating money uh, at the discretion of President Washington to give uh, clergy, including Catholic priests, to, uh, as they called it, civilizing Native Americans. But of course, uh, these pastors and priests were also Christianizing or attempting to Christianize Native Americans. Mm. And that sort of idea that you could give funds for uh, a, a putatively secular purpose, right, to, as it were, cultivate relations with Native Americans to, um, uh, as far as possible, put uh, get into the good graces uh, of Native Americans with respect to the to the United States. Um, and also, you know, they would see as a side effect, but of course these pastor and priest state is one of the core missions to Christianize. Mm -hmm. um, that's the kind of uh, uh, arrangement of church and state that I think um, is a result or one of the possibilities that comes from uh, the non-establishment clause. Sure. Um, and this included George Washington, included James Madison as secretary of state. Um, and it's that so that that kind of patronage is is what I see the First Amendment allowing um, by the founders themselves. Um, what it doesn't allow, though, is say the appointment appointment of bishops, right. right? Which had been the prerogative, and in fact still is, as we now know, with uh, the Prime Minister currently as as a Catholic, uh, he's not allowed to recommend bishops in the Church of England. It's against the Catholic Religious uh, Catholic Relief Act in the 1800s, uh, Catholics explicitly cannot recommend bishops of the Church of England to the, to the crown. Um, and the founders uh, uh, also negated that uh, patronage right. Uh, this goes back to the medieval tradition of jus patronatus. And they did so quite explicitly. Um, the Holy See wanted the Congress to approve John Carroll as bishop. And Benjamin Franklin, who was working with the papal nuncio at the time, um, said, well, this is ridiculous. Uh, the Congress does not contemplate this kind of jurisdiction over ecclesiastical matters. And the papal nuncio insisted. And so Franklin dutifully sent a note to Congress and Congress replied that it does not have jurisdiction over spiritual, merely spiritual affairs, right? Uh, or, uh, over spiritual affairs, it, it only contemplates jurisdiction over civil affairs. And so it, it explicitly rejected this kind of patronage, right? And that's what I think, you know, when we talk about the Establishment Clause, we have in mind these kind of historical markers, appointment of bishops and so on. And that's what's unique about the US Constitution and the American founding. Uh, but the American founders, as, as you say, generally uh, agreed that there could be some kind of cooperation between religious organizations and people of faith with uh, civil government. This um, distinction between spiritual and civil affairs, the things of the world and the things of the soul. You detail an effort to keep these things distinct. Government handles the worldly, churches, mosques, and synagogues, the spiritual. How realistic is it to try to maintain this distinction? It seems like necessarily there is some overlap between the two and probably more than we might think. 
I think the drama of the First Amendment religion clauses has to do is precisely with that question of how exactly are these distinct? And I think it takes serious philosophical analysis, uh, even metaphysical analysis, uh, to understand uh, these, these um, two realms or jurisdictions or powers or authorities um, in, in their proper uh, relationship. Um, and of course, one of the, the, the problems of um, understanding this relationship between the spiritual and the temporal is that they um, oftentimes uh, necessarily meet. Yeah. Um, and if you understand the human person, for instance, right, as um, a kind of hylomorphic unity of body and soul, well, um, it's very hard to separate uh, that. Yeah. Um, and if you understand um, uh, religious organizations as having both secular and spiritual aims, maybe primarily spiritual aims, of course, but it has secular aims as well, well, then it's very difficult to tease that out as well. And this is what, this is what animates so much of US jurisprudence, um, Supreme Court uh, uh, case law on, on this question. Um, it does, you know, giving money towards a playground at um, a religious institution constitute an establishment of religion. Um, uh, funding scholarships for students to go to a religious institution and so on. And I think um, this, is, this is the kind of inevitable result of, of um, our, our um, existence as spiritual and material beings. And so we're never going to find these entirely distinct, but I think analytically they are. I mean, in terms of if you understand their ends. Um, and this, of course, is what animates so much of the debate among Catholics, uh, but also among non-Catholics about papal authority, right? And if you go back to that central question, uh, does the Pope have the, the authority to intervene in temporal affairs? Well, uh, not directly, you might say, um, insofar as the Pope does not have any kind of direct temporal authority in that way, um, but insofar as he contemplates a kind of spiritual good right? Or a spiritual evil, right? An evil that needs to be remedied. Um, well, that requires a kind of intervention, yeah. right? In political affairs. Um, and, and exactly the prudence of that, right? Um, is, is a very difficult question. Um, but, but I think in principle, uh, if you believe as a kind of matter of, of metaphysical um, uh, disposition, uh, that the spiritual is higher than the temporal, uh, well, that triggers, I think, uh, a kind of, um, um, uh, uh, of conclusion that uh, leads to thinking that actually spiritual authorities do have power to intervene in temporal affairs in some circumstances. Yeah. Uh, when you know the Catholic bishops today talk about citizens' guides for voting, that's a kind of intervention in political affairs, even though they don't explicitly endorse a candidate. Right. You started to tug on this thread. We're, we're, we're going to go for it now. There seems to be a mounting interest among some, it seems mostly younger Catholics in the Catholic integralist tradition of thought, which sort of a nickel and dime store definition, and you can add or subtract to this, says that since man has both this temporal and eternal or spiritual end, and since the temporal end is inferior to the spiritual end, the temporal power, the worldly power, civil government must be subordinated to the eternal. What do you make of that? What would the Catholics of the American founding make of that? I'm curious for your thoughts. Well, so it, 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 I think the integralist um, movement now um, is in some ways uh, yet another example of this papalist 
versus anti-papalist uh, debate that stemmed from the crises of church and state in the medieval era. So I, I, this is not a new movement by any means. Uh, they have a new name for it, um, but uh, I, I, this is a kind of um, a kind of uh, uh, papalism and ultramontanism um, that uh, maybe has different political inflections today. But it's, you know, at its core, is the same metaphysical picture that, uh, say, Robert Bellarmine had in the Middle Ages. Um, so I, I think we have to keep in mind here um, principles from prudence. Um, if, if the view is that the spiritual is higher than the temporal, well, that's a very, you know, 300, you know, 36,000 feet view of, right, the world. And uh, the, the applications of that are not immediately obvious. Right. I think, I think one of the important texts for, for Catholics to understand this is Pope, ben, uh, Pope Leo XIII's Immortality Day, in which he describes um, the proper orientation of church and state as akin to, as a kind of analogy, uh, to the soul-body union of a person. Um, and I think what uh, uh, flows from that is, is a view that says, okay, yes, the, the spiritual authority is, is higher, but there are certain competencies that the temporal mm. government has. And so it's not, uh, the spiritual does not uh, subsume um, uh, the temporal uh, authority, the proper ends of that temporal authority um, in, in such a way that it exhausts it or completely annihilates it, right? There's a kind of good of temporal authority that needs to be preserved. One that you might say uh, Jesus uh, affirms, right, in the gospels uh, teaching. Uh, and of course, St. Paul takes that up uh, in Romans as well. There's a kind of good that God has instantiated, uh, indeed created, uh, that must be respected. Um, the question arises when the temporal authority uh, goes astray, you might say, or doesn't, um, doesn't uh, live up to the kind of mandate of, of uh, caring for the common good. Uh, that's when uh, it's important to keep uh, the, the principles of this with the prudence, right? Mm. Um, and I think there's a long tradition uh, in Catholicism, say with uh, Thomas Aquinas, for instance, that allows for a kind of pluralism of, of, of government that keeps in mind that the, the Pope does have this kind of apex of spiritual authority that can uh, intervene in temporal affairs, as he says in the sentences commentary, um, but also in De Regno, uh, his treatise on, on tyranny, that oftentimes um, you can appeal to higher authorities, temporal authorities, or even the Pope, but um, sometimes uh, in the face of tyranny, the only consolation one, ha one has is to pray mm. um, and to appeal to God, in other words. Um, and so it's not clear that, um, that uh, a kind of uh, church-state unity is the most effective means of uh, mitigating uh, uh, wrongs in the political order. Um, it, it, I mean, it could be, um, but there has to be a, a great amount of prudence, I think, that goes into whether that um, particular regime is well-suited for the population, uh, would, would be respected and, and so on. Um, and indeed, whether most of them would be, in this case, Catholic. Um, and Catholics, of course, are not the only ones who have these kind of visions. I mean, I think, uh, you know, early settlements in early America uh, had in mind uh, a kind of church-state unity uh, as well, um, even if they didn't uh, see the Pope in, as involved in that. Um, and so I think um, uh, the, the way in which the spiritual authority should get involved has to 
has to run along the lines of a kind of very careful prudential judgment mm. about not, um, as it were, um, uh, uh, weakening the spiritual authority in the view of, of the citizens, right? Um, and I think it's telling that, for instance, um, you know, popes today don't, uh, you know, intervene in this kind of way uh, that we saw in the Middle Ages, because, you know, most people uh, are, uh, are not in a kind of confessional state. Uh, most people have a, have a developed understanding of the kind of freedom that uh, the Second Vatican, Vatican Council affirms, and they would see it as, as greatly imprudent and impolitic to do so. Thinking about the future, Michael, uh, today it seems clear that an adherence to some of the basic tenets of Catholicism, I'm thinking particularly on social issues, is becoming increasingly more difficult with significant costs politically, personally, professionally, so on and, and so forth. And some of these threats are, are, are rather brazen now. I'm thinking of Senator Dianne Feinstein's questioning of Amy Coney Barrett back in 2017. The dogma lives loudly within you. You're a devout Catholic. Therefore, you may not be capable of serving this country. Are Catholics at risk today of losing the religious liberty that in your telling they labored so diligently to establish here in America? I think people of all faiths um, are uh, always, as it were, uh, you know, as, as, as we say in the, in the Christian tradition, on a journey. Mm. Uh, and this is, this is a kind of uh, pilgrimage, a kind of way station, right? Um, this is not our true home. That, that goes back to very early Christianity. You, yeah. you see this in St. Augustine. And I think that needs to be kept in mind in all these, these um, uh, sometimes alarming uh, uh, anti-Catholic or anti-religious uh, contexts. Um, that this is not truly our home. That, that's, that's a very early Christian thought. Um, at the same time, there has been a great development of trying to make uh, this world, uh, this side of salvation, uh, as commodious as possible, um, not least um, to for the conversion of more souls. I mean, that's that's how that's how people, uh, uh, religious people, understand it um, to, as it were, convert the world, yeah. uh, whether that's Islam or or, or Christianity or, or another religion. And so, um, I think, you know, there's always going to be um, uh, religious people seen as signs of contradiction right, to whatever kind of political order is involved. So the latest iteration of, of anti-Catholic sentiment um, to me as an historian is absolutely of no surprise. Um, and uh, in, 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 in a sense, one of the arguments of the book is that although we have a kind of theoretical understanding uh, ensconced, uh, codified in the, in the First Amendment of religious liberty, defined as you know, grounded in a kind of naturalness Right, these are kind of natural rights, um, whether God-given or not. Right, um, but the kind of inherent in us um, that needs to be respected. Um, that being the case, there is a kind of effective toleration, and hence the title of the book. Right, it's not you know Catholics and religious liberty in early America; it's Catholics and religious toleration in early America. And that's not only that's not just because half of the book is about you know, Catholics as subjects, right? But toleration is defined as, you know, the state um, could always revoke, right? It's enforcement of religious liberty laws, right? Or find ways so that they don't apply in particular cases. And I think that's always a, a present danger. And one of the ways that I show this is the naturalization oath, mm -hmm. you know, uh, 
you know, was defined in, seven, in the 1790s and hasn't changed. I mean, the, the immigrants who come to this country and, and take that oath is effective the same oath as it was in 1790s. And one of the things that uh, naturalized citizens have to swear is that they renounce all allegiances to any foreign state, power, potentate, and so on. Now, that is a direct reference to English oaths of allegiance and supremacy, um, which were uh, deeply anti-Catholic documents. Now, it's important to note that there's no um, prelate um, in the American iteration of that oath. Um, so you might say that the silence there is uh, telling, that um, they didn't expect people to renounce their foreign prelate allegiances. Uh, but of course, um, uh, you know, if, if you're a person of faith and you, you have a kind of spiritual allegiance to a rabbi, uh, an imam, to the Pope and so on, um, uh, one wonders whether that is included in, in a power or an authority, yeah. right? And so um, I think there was a debate about that. That's why James Madison intervened and says, no, no, I know Catholics, they're good Republicans. They fought valiantly in the revolution and so on. Uh, so that was part of the discussion. There was a kind of implicit anti-Catholicism that some of the uh, congressmen understood this oath of allegiance to, to peddle. Um, that's always present. That possibility is always present that people can construe um, our laws as um, as being uh, against people of faith or their, their certain spiritual allegiances. Um, and in light of that um, ever-present uh, nature, uh, I think uh, all people, people of faith live in a kind of state of toleration mm. uh, with, with respect to any government. Well, Michael, there's, there's a lot more that we could talk about. I, to say that we didn't scrape the surface of the book would actually be an understatement. But what we've been uh, discussing your new book, Our Dear Bought Liberty, Catholics and Religious Toleration in Early America. Michael Breidenbach, thank you so much for joining us today on Madison's Notes. It was a pleasure. Thanks very much, Gina. There you have it, Madisonians. Michael Breidenbach on his new book, Our Dear Bought Liberty, Catholics and Religious Toleration in Early America. As I mentioned already, it's a very thoroughly researched and interesting book. You'll find a link to the book in the show notes, so be sure to get your copy today. And as always, please do tell your friends and family about Madison's Notes and leave us a five-star review on iTunes if you haven't already. We appreciate it very much. That's all for us today. Thanks so much for joining us, and I hope to have you back with us next time, here on Madison's Notes. <laughs>